Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and on the podcast, we discuss all aspects of technology and life in international schools, with new episodes live every two weeks. We focus on people who are currently working in schools, and we talk about life in their current country and dive into some specific topics. The podcast is brought to you by Acer for Education. People always ask what Chromebooks we recommend and what Windows laptops we recommend, and after trying literally all of them, we always recommend Acer. If you'd like to get more info and try out some devices, please just go to gg.gg forward slash Acer Education. That's gg.gg forward slash Acer Education, and we'll get right back to you. Also, the podcast is brought to you by Apps Events. We're a Google partner. We work all around the world. We've just got one piece of new information right now. This is in, in January 2021. We're a G Suite Enterprise for Education partner. That's Giuseppe. This is a bunch of premium tools available to people using Google at their schools. We can help you get set up with a free one-month trial. So please check out the link in the show notes, and we'll do that right away. And now, on to the interview. Hi, welcome to the International Schools Podcast. Today, I'm here with my co-host, John Mixon. How are you doing, John? Great. Thank you, Dan. Doing really well. Excited Good. about I'm today's in, conversation. Definitely. I'm in Prague. John, you're in Luxembourg. We got a guest today, Denry Mackin, who, I don't know if that's how you, is that how you pronounce your last name, Denry? It's actually Machin, but Mitchin, I've been called sorry. all sorts of things. That's, that's far from the worst thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Denry is the author of a book, International Schooling, The Teacher's Guide, which I've got in my hand here, really, really good book. I read it. Uh, I was on, I was in Austria for three weeks in the Alps. I, re- I read the book and fascinating. So it, it's a guide, for, obviously, like it says, guide for teachers work, looking to work in international schools. So we're going to talk about the book. So welcome to the podcast, Henry. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, John. And thank you to your listeners. Yeah. So Henry, before, before we get into the book, I'm just keen to learn a bit about your background. Can you just talk us through like where you've done and where you've worked and what, what, what's, what's your background? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, first before that, Dan, uh, you said you were reading the book in uh, in Austria. Yeah. Um, all, all, all those beautiful views. It's very flattering that you chose to have your head in in our book. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's true. Well, I didn't read it all day. You know, I was out hiking. And stuff, you know, I did that. Late at night, he read it when the sun was down. Exactly. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's not that soporific. Hopefully it didn't send you to sleep. No, no, I enjoyed it. I drank it over beer in the evening, so it was good. <laughs> good, 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 good. So in, t- in terms of the background, uh, how far back would you like me to go? I actually started off in uh, ladies' lingerie. Would you like me to go back that far? Yeah, sure. Tell, tell yeah, us. Tell us. <laughs> it's, less, it's less exciting than it sounds. Um, so initially, I did management training with Marks & Spencers. For management training with Marks & Spencers, you're required to do a rotation around all of the departments. And so I was a young 21-year-old, and that included a spell in the uh, ladies' lingerie department. But uh, retail and I didn't get on. Um, even a spell in the ladies' lingerie department couldn't do it for the young 21-year-old me. So I decided that if I was going to go old and grey over something, which I sadly I, I now am, it should be something that mattered more than whether apples and pears sold better next to each other than apples and oranges. Um, so I, I, I trained to become uh, a teacher. But my, my career... Uh, infamously started in uh, in ladies' lingerie. Fantastic. Nice. Okay, great. And then you, and you so did, a, did you... A, right, you did an MBA and then a PhD. Is that right? Um, th- so they, they come um, a little bit uh, later on. John, do you have a question there? Yeah, what did you start teaching? What was the first kind of uh, a secondary, primary? Kind of so, give us your little yeah. journey of as an educator. So by trade, um, I'm a business studies and economics teacher. Um, so I started off in a small UK independent boarding school, did uh, four years or so there, moved over to the state sector, um, did a year in the uh, state sector, um, a very, very, very different to the um, independent school experience, but a very rewarding year um, in a state school. By that point, I'd already got the bug for international school teaching and was applying fairly early on in my tenure with the state school to move uh, overseas. The head of the state school that had um, taken me was not very happy when only three or four months into my tenure, I handed my notice in because I was moving to to Thailand. But I I guess such such is the way of things. And the opportunity in Thailand was too great to turn down. So that was back in 2003. I moved then to Harrow, Bangkok to take up the post as um, head of sixth form. And I've actually been with the the Harrow group ever since. I'm, I'm still with Harrow now. But initially, 2003 was head of sixth form. Um, I moved up the ranks through um, head of secondary, 
became um, latterly uh, head of Opera School. Then in 2012, um, I moved over to the corporate side, and it was at that time that I also started to do university lecturing. I'd completed my MBA, which was with Keele University, MBA education, maybe we'll pick up on that later. Um, so um, did my MBA, moved over to the corporate side, did the PhD, and then for the last eight years, I've been working for um, Asia International Schools Limited, who are the license holder for the um, Harrow schools across um, Asia. And my job title sounds very exciting, special projects. Um, that basically means anything and everything um, to do with primarily the operation of the of the new schools. So I was involved in the opening of uh, Harrow Hong Kong, um, Harrow Beijing, Harrow Shanghai, the last year, the Harrow Group opened five schools um, in China, so I was involved in the opening of those. At the moment, most of my time is taking up with a, a, an exciting project in uh, Harrow Appy. Um, so in, in Japan, uh, we're opening a school that's very similar to the Swiss um, mountain-based schools. Uh, we're opening a Harrow in the mountains up in Iwate Prefecture um, in Japan. Nice. Um, so and in addition to that, I'm now, I started my um, academic life with Kiel. I'm now with uh, Warwick supporting them on their PGCI uh, program. Uh, and I say spare time, that doesn't give me much spare time. In my spare time, I'm also a governor for a small not-for-profit school in Malaysia. Sounds wow. good. Well, interesting. We'll, we'll get on to the PGCI later because I've actually done a PGCI. So I'm, I can give you the other, my, my perspective of the people I did it with and what, what the people are doing now who, who did it, you know? Dan, maybe, and Dan, it might be good to explain a BGCI because not everybody will know if you can just the acronym. I think that's always helpful because we do have an international audience. Yes, indeed. Postgraduate Certificate International. Sometimes the I is put before, um, sometimes it goes after. For, for, for Warwick, it's after. And uh, Dan, you did a, a podcast a few uh, months ago, maybe now, um, with a chap who'd done the Nottingham PGCI. So you, you did the Knots one. Yeah, I did Nottingham. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I was going to talk about that a bit later, but let, let's talk about it now we're on the topic. It's, it's fascinating because, you know, we, you talk about in the book about qualifications for international schools. And what, what I find fascinating is whatever anyone tells me, I can find exceptions because people will say, you know, if you do a PGCAI uh, from certain, if it doesn't have an assessed component, then you can't get a job in these countries or these schools. And yet I know people who did the Nottingham PGCI who work in Hong Kong. And the, and then some people will say, for example, in Qatar, if you have a degree that was done online, you can't get a job in Qatar. And I know people who've done online degrees and get Qatar. So I, I find fascinating with the, the whole qualifications landscape, how much of a gray area it is and how much individual conversations will, will and how you word things will let you get away with things. You know? Uh, yes, yeah, so um, you, you use the word exception, and I think it's a phrase in the book that uh, at risk of a finger wagged in the direction of an exception, uh, and there are all always ex exceptions to the rule. Yeah. And it's one of the things that I tell PGCI students. Um, often schools will say that they don't accept PGCIs um, when from the inside you would know, as you've said, Dan, there are people employed um, in those schools with PGCIs. So Often it can be a case of if your face fits, um, if they want you, having yeah. a PGCI removes, often removes, though not always, any legal impediment to them recruiting you. Yep. What happens so is that heads will use PGCIs as a way, and apologies to the heads that are listening, um, they'll use PGCIs as a way of avoiding a difficult conversation. It's much harder to say to somebody, you don't fit for yeah. indeterminate reasons, but I just don't feel that you fit. It's much easier just to say, we don't take people with PGCIs and, and that's it, that's done. Um, yeah. So that's take a step back, how it typically works is you do a, a sort of, well, the Nottingham one I can give you, tell you, but you do like a four day course together. I did it in Bangkok actually, which was fantastic. Really enjoyed it. And then, then a bunch of online um, Credits. I mean, essentially, you do like a third of the credits of a, of a master. So it's the same. It's the same credit of a UK PGCE, but it doesn't have all the assessed. It doesn't have the the other stuff which gets you qualified teacher status in the UK. Which is it's kind of interesting, you know. Because I, I think for what you say in the book is, it's, if you can, it's better to either do the US qualifications or or the UK one to get certified. That's always a logical one. And if not, you know, PGCI is a good second second option. Uh, yes, yeah, so my advice, so despite teaching on a PGCI now and having had an interest in PGCIs um, for 
close to a decade now, first with Kiel um, and then with Warwick. And, and in both cases, um, albeit indirectly, I, I, I conceived with the universities those courses. Um, despite that, my advice to people would always be, if at all possible, that they should go back to um, the UK, the US, to get fully licensed. And fully licensed would mean including, in the case of the, UT, the UK, um, getting QTS. If I had a pound for every time I've been asked a question about QTS, um, I wouldn't have to write books or, or work. I could simply spend my life answering those questions. Yeah. Um, so it is it is primarily QTS or, in the case of the, the US, state licensing that differentiates PGCEs plus QTS from PGCIs. Um, but the, the PGCI is a very valid qualification for those who are not able to go back to the UK or indeed for for those for whom going back to the, the UK is a misnomer that there's no UK to go back to they're not from there they've got yeah. no association with the UK and so a PGCI um, offers a, a very valid alternative for those people to gain an internationally recognized qualification and you've touched on it Dan there are markets where it is much more difficult to have your PGCI um, accepted. Um, and Hong Kong is the, is the classic example. Hong Kong, the EDB requires an awful lot of paperwork to get a PGCI validated. Um, and it changes over time. And the exceptions that you've pointed out may have fallen between the cracks in terms of loopholes over time. Um, but it is the, the case that that the, EDB requires an assessed teaching practice and a very, very strict amount of taught hours uh, on the yeah. program as well. Interesting. That's interesting that you say that, Denry, because in my career, uh, having taught in six different international schools, often it's the country requirements. So in Japan, you definitely needed a bachelor's, a teacher's, and ideally a master's. So sometimes it's not the school, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but sometimes it's also the national requirement and it's an immigration thing to control who's coming in and out? Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. It can be both. As I say, schools use um, PGCIs. They, they, they will draw the line at not accepting teachers who've got PGCIs other than by exception. Um, but also... I, I think can... a lot of it is, yeah, like you said, it's a, it's a country requirement. But in, in my experience of people who've... I mean, I know people who've got jobs with almost no qualifications I never would have expected they'll get. It's, I think if people really want you, then they'll... You've got you've got a better chance of, of them trying to work find a workaround. I think that's typically, but it, but you know the problem is that the, the problem is without a qualification you can't get your foot in the door and get to meet them in the first place. That's a difficult thing. Uh, yes, of, often it will be accompanying partners um, who are known to the school anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I think the key is that a, a PDCI removes in most countries the legal impediments to getting you a teacher license. Yeah. Um, so. Thailand, for example, um, it is possible to get jobs in English language centres with only a bachelor's degree. But in order to work in international school, you would need a PGCI. Um, yeah. Most top tier international schools would want a PGCE and QTS. But that's a, back to John's point. That's a school requirement rather than a legal requirement. A PGCI yeah. will get you your local Thai teaching licence and then the school can legally employ you. Got it. So, so I want to start off, sorry, John, you got something to say? Yeah. So, uh, Denry, one of the things that you talk about is this PGCI and, of course, having those uh, certifications. Are there other things in qualifications that you as a recruiter, and I imagine you've recruited many times, that is kind of part of that package? Because, OK, you got your PGCE or your teaching credential or wh whatever national official uh, paperwork you have that says you're a certified teacher. What else have you found to be really helpful as qualifications? Of course, experience is going to be important. You know, a lot of people talk about this idea of having a master's or another uh, specification, maybe EAL or learning support or reading, you know, just curious on your thoughts. What's what added qualifications have you noticed are helpful in this very competitive market? Yeah, so that was actually a, a small subset component of my PhD research um, for mainstream teachers. Um, it would be a, an, an undergraduate degree um, that is either a teaching qualification and, looping back to our previous conversation, accrues a teacher license or, predominantly for secondary teachers, 
an undergraduate degree plus a postgraduate certificate that also accrues um, a teaching license or sufficient qualifications to get a teaching license in the country in which you wish to work. For a mainstream teacher over and above that, in terms of formal qualifications, there wouldn't necessarily be any strict need. Um, schools would want the teachers to demonstrate commitment to professional development, but that could be in the form of attending one day upskilling courses. It could be in the form of they themselves offering training um, online, but there wouldn't be any formal requirements. Where you start to see schools privileging and preferencing qualifications would, as, uh, would be as teachers start to move into middle leader and certainly senior leadership positions where MAs and either MAs in education or masters in educational leadership and management and increasingly MBAs um, are becoming more and more popular. However, for, for my research, there were very few posts, um, certainly minority, where that was required for a leadership position. And it, it isn't the case, for example, that a majority of principals hold doctorates. An increasing number are holding doctorates, but they remain in the, in the minority. So there, there are no actual formal requirements. A, a master's will set you apart. And um, I always describe it as signaling your intent. If you do a master's in a teaching and learning field, it signals your intent towards staying connected and close to the classroom. If you do a, an MBA in education, that's a very strong signal of your intent to move upwards towards um, a principalship and then perhaps into roles such as the one I've got on the corporate side of, of, of education. Interesting. Jeremy, I want to just take a step back and look at the growth of international schools because this fascinates me about how I think between 2000 and 2020, it was, it's gone from something like uh, 2,600 schools to 12,000 schools, which I find interesting, by the way, because I've, I've compiled a list. I sh we should compare a list. I've, I've compiled a list of what I think is every international school, even some very sketchy ones, and I've got to like 9,000. So I know this 12,000 <laughs> number. It mu I, just, I, I, I must be like Bob's International School in Bakery or something in there to get some. But, uh, but whatever, like the numbers have grown hugely, and Obviously, you talk about how it's 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 grown from just being, you know, schools for expats and diplomats and things to to um, schools, eighty percent local students and and stuff. And uh, so, can you talk a bit about what's driven the growth in international schools in this time? Yes, so uh, twelve thousand three hundred schools at the moment, according to uh, ISC. Uh, and like you say, the, the, we could debate, and there have been many pages. Um, committed to bait, debating the, the definition of international schools um, yeah. in there. So, so the true number, um, who, who knows? But unquestionably, um, there has been phenomenal growth um, a, a, across the industry. Yeah. And the two factors mainly behind um, that growth. Uh, Globalisation, to which we would attach um, increasing use of English um, as the lingua franca of, of commerce and of, of the internet, Lingua Franca used deliberately, ironically, um, there. For as long as that remains the case, um, until Chinese, um, if and when, becomes the dominant language, globalisation and English clearly go together, and international schooling has grown on the back of increasing demand from parents for a, a, an education delivered in the English language. Yeah. We could attach to that, perhaps to a lesser extent, a desire from parents for an international education. Um, but as I'm sure you both know, that that is another debated term. What, what, what does an international education um, actually mean? Um, so that, that's on the one side, globalisation, a desire for an education in English. Um, on the other side of that is um, increasing parental ability to pay for such an education through growth in the in the middle classes more parents now want an international education and more parents can now afford an international education and that those two factors combined are, are driving demand i guess we could add into that that um governments in um a lot of countries certainly countries in southeast asia are in essence outsourcing um, provision of international education, again, loosely defined, to the international schools sector. Less and less so as regulations tighten in China and in some countries. But for the moment, that has been the growth pattern that countries have outsourced international education to international schools as, as private providers. 
Now, Denry, this growth also, uh, I, I take it, there's kind of two types of international schools. Well, there are many, but uh, there's the one which is more the traditional nonprofit, which were the schools that when I started in 93 in Africa, there was one school in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam, and now yeah. there are five. And so what has happened and has been there has been a significant growth in the for-profit because there's a huge market. There's unbelievable untapped resources and market uh, potential. So that growth has been, would you agree, has been greater in the for-profit and maybe the non-profits actually have not done as well and maybe are not as nimble because they're single entities in one place and they very likely have much limited funds than say a larger organization that has spread its capital across different countries. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is an interesting thought exercise. Um, and um, to Dan's point about Bob's nursery of Bangkok, um, they, those exceptions aside, if one tries to think, so let's say in the last decade, of any high-profile not-for-profit schools um, that have opened, um, we could fill the full hour talking just about the for-profit and high-profile schools that have, have opened. Yeah. Difficult to think of many not-for-profits. Um, and I guess that's partly because there's less incentive for them to do so. Um, they're, they're not driven by the financial bottom line. They're not driven by corporate entities. Um, and therefore, they're happy to stay as their single school, perhaps community-owned um, schools with little incentive to, to grow. Um, Decision-making also tends to be much more risk-averse um, and therefore slower. Um, I know of one not-for-profit school um, that has looked at overseas expansion, um, but the board are very, very reluctant. The board are very, very risk-averse. And for as long as they continue to serve the community which they were set up to serve, there is little incentive for that school to grow. It's fascinating. Generally, I think we could talk so much on this topic. And if you agree, I'd love to do another episode talking about you know, I'm fascinated by the growth of these organizations like GEMS and Nord Anglia and Cognita and, and the British schools licensing their name. But I think, you know, obviously it'd be great to stick, stick to the book for, for, for this chart. Um, but there's uh, part of this, you said that like 80% are now local students. So the, the, the demographics have changed of an international school from being mostly foreigners to, to mostly local students. Uh, yep. Um, so the, the, the general adage um, is that 80% of students in international schools are now local nationals. So if you went into the average school, in average international school in Vietnam, it would be predominantly populated with Vietnamese nationals. Clearly, there are exceptions to those rules. Again, we can wag our fingers in the, in, in the direction of exceptions. Uh, and every city will have its type A school, the traditional school, um, set up more than a, a decade, two decades ago that will have the greater share of expatriate children. But as the number of expatriate children being educated overseas decreases, and as the number of locals um, increases, schools are now populated predominantly by local nationals. So something we point out in the book is um, it, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy that a teacher may move from the UK or the US, where they are teaching in very, very diverse classrooms with a diversity of, of nationalities and backgrounds, and they move overseas, and those classrooms that they're teaching in may now be more monocultural than what they were used to back in the UK or in the States. I think that's so interesting because very likely the assumption is that it's going to be more if i'm going international and i'm going to a different country it's going to be more international that's fascinating oh, yes. denry you talk about also the diminishing population of expats and the increasing population of locals going into these international schools what is why are there less expats from your perspective is it economic or is it just because of the local talent a lot of companies don't have to bring expats to run other offices and there's so much talent around the world you can actually tap into local markets yeah at the moment we could add covid into that mix um but all, mm -hmm. all of the all of the above um so certainly localization um is at play um more global companies recruiting locals um there is also um and specifically talking asia here um, the, the rise of Asia, the rise of quality, higher education within Asia, and a lot of graduates coming out of Asian universities of Asian nationality that can now do the jobs just as well, if not better, 
than the expats who previously would have done those jobs. They are far more likely to be bilingual or tri trilingual, for example. Um, so those factors combined with the different ebbs and flows of globalization have seen generally, and clearly, you know, again, we can wag our fingers at exceptions, um, have seen expat numbers fall across a number of countries. I, see, that surprises me. I, I would say anecdotally, I would think the number of expats has, has increased. And if you look at, I mean, and again, you know, you, you've got the numbers, but I'm thinking, say, if you take, say, Middle East, Middle East and Asia, where obviously the, all the growth is for international schools, I mean, there's, I would say there's definitely a lot more expats in the Middle East with the growth of like UAE, people working in Saudi than, than there used to be. But just maybe it hasn't grown as much as the local sector. Uh, uh, yes, I, I think you, you actually touched on a really interesting point there, Dan. 12,300 schools, and we tend to talk about international schooling as if it's one market, um, yeah. and, and, it, and it isn't. Um, you know, so it's many, many, many different markets, and, and nor is the market in Thailand the same as in, as in Vietnam, and it is worlds removed from the market um, in the Middle East or the market in South America. Yeah. And yet we, we always talk, and I'm as guilty as anybody, of, of the industry as, as, as a whole. Um, but you know, Bob, Bob's nursery at Bangkok is far removed um, from British School Beijing um, or Doha College. And one thing that I think is interesting in regards to what you're saying, Denry, is that I know from my experience, many corporations and companies are not giving the packages that they did where maybe the kids can't go into kindergarten, they have to wait till first grade, or they have five years and then they go on to a local contract. And we're definitely seeing that in the last few schools I've been to where you've seen that change is that you, you reach a point in your a career in the local market where then you're brought over to the local pay scale and the local labor laws and hotel uh, holidays. So I think that also is maybe one of the, the creative tensions for uh, this market? And yes, absolutely, for sure. Um, and it is certainly the case that over the next decade, we may see greater growth in middle um, fee schools, um, so tier two, tier three, um, however we define those schools, than perhaps in, in the upper tiers, certainly amongst the expatriates. As more expatriates are being localised, as more expatriates are unable to afford to put their children into premium international schools for, as you say, John, kindergarten, we may see increased growth in middle fee schools. What's interesting is in Luxembourg, the government has opened five international schools running the IB and the uh, IGCSC in the Cambridge, and they don't charge anything. And it's English teachers running an international curriculum because Luxembourg understands this is a market. They can attract companies and they don't charge them anything that basically you go to an international school at no cost. It's like a local public school, state school, but it's running the IB or the IGCSE. And for us as a international school that requires fees, that's a very interesting creative tension to face. And I'm wondering if other national systems are thinking, oh, this is a way to leverage companies coming into our country if we provide them this international education. Yeah, that, that, that is fascinating. Um, and it tests the definition, the, the definition in the book and the generally accepted definition that's used to count those uh, 12,300 schools um, generally includes fee paying uh, in the definition. So an international school is considered to be fee paying. Um, but your example, John, there proves that that doesn't necessarily be the case. Yeah, and they're, they're running ads in TES. They're recruiting from the UK. Uh, the ministry now has actually a section that is international schools, and they're looking for leaders and teachers, and they do the recruitment, but paid by the local taxes. It's not unusual for schools to have in international streams, though, again, they tend to be private local schools, but they're, they're private, so they're fee-paying, even if it is very modest fees. But ve very interesting that there are schools out there claiming to be international schools or claiming the label mm. international schools yeah. um, that are, that are non-fee-paying. Again, it speaks to the diversity of the market and how difficult it is um, to actually and bring that together into, into one simple definition. It, it, it escapes easy definition and is constantly changing. 
I guess a few people listening to this are probably people looking to go work for international schools. So for a prospective employee, either in leadership or tech or as a teacher, like obviously you classify these types of international schools as ABLC and potentially tier one, two or three. Like what should they, is there any general rules they can think about what it's going to be like in these individual schools? You know, like John was saying before the call, like he's only ever worked for nonprofit and that's, that's what he wants to do, you know, and he's heard some some good and some bad things about the for-profit sector. Like, what would you say, is there any general advice if, there, if it's possible to prospective teachers and what, how to think about these type, different types of schools and different um, levels of schools? The, the, the advice would be do your research. And that obviously mm. begs um, the question as to, to how and, and, and where. Um, the, the challenge is that there are some very good not-for-profit schools and there are some very bad not-for-profit schools. There are some very good for-profit schools and some very bad um, for-profit schools um, as well. Um, and the, the, the tiers um, across the schools, whether um, we call them tier one, two and three, um, upper tier, mid-tier, lower tier, the, there is no codified sense no. across the different markets of what schools fit within what tiers. So very often you will find um, a, a teacher applying to move overseas um, gets excited by the prospect of a post, um, is sold in inverted commas a school by a principal, and then when they arrive, they discover that it's a um, tier two, tier three um, school and isn't everything that they'd wished for. However, the flip side of that is some teachers prefer to work in tier two schools um, and there are some excellent tier two and tier three um, schools out there that may be perfectly suitable um, to a given teacher. So the, the advice comes back to one simply has to do the research um, using websites um, Obviously, uh, I would encourage people to buy the book and to read the book. Um, the book has several chapters on, on selecting schools. There are Facebook um, groups where one can ask questions um, about schools. I believe TES have removed their forums for the, mo for the moment, but the TES forums have always been a good source of information about the schools, albeit with the school names changed for the moderation purposes. Um, but digging uh, deep and finding out as much about the school as possible and not being afraid to ask questions at interview, appreciating that's difficult when you sat at the end of these days a camera lens being interviewed by a principal, potentially a panel, but not being able to ask some difficult questions of the head about the school. And if the school is any good, um, if the head is any good, she or he will be happy, delighted to answer those questions to affirm the quality of their school. And one of the, the things... is fascinating because... Schools will only ever call themselves a tier one school or they won't say they're anything at all. It's kind of interesting because there's no, this, this tiering doesn't officially exist anywhere. I mean, you look at where you live, Bangkok, you'd probably get a lot of schools like ISB, Patana, NIST. There's probably a list of schools who would say they're tier one. And then probably some of them are not kind of other schools wouldn't regard them as tier one. So it's not something that you can't look up this definition anywhere. And, and it's just kind of what people kind of generally think in, in, the, in the education community in the city, isn't it? I, I, I think that's... Go on, John. I, I absolutely agree with you, Dan. It's kind of hearsay reputation and what one person might think of a tier one school from their experience or a colleague's experience, and then somebody else might perceive it very differently. And there is not really like a grading, uh, you know, that you have in some organizations where, you know, you have a star that says you've done certain things. So I think it's quite difficult. And uh, I, I love, Denry, what you say is really do your homework, is really invest the time. And I think in the book, the way you've broken it up, and what I really like about the book, it, you say, it's a guy, don't read it back to front, you know, jump in where it makes sense, grab yeah. those chapters, and you do a really nice job of breaking it down, like not the best curriculum, uh, the same, but different. There are just some nice provocations in the chapter headings that I think anybody then can really do due diligence and spend time with that and then do their own research. Because I think, as you're saying, you're going to have to do some research. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for, for that, John. That's, uh, that's very nice to hear. Uh, the book is exactly designed like that. And as it says in the introduction, we, we wrote it with a view to people scribbling in the margins, whether, whether virtually or, re, uh, or real, if they're reading it on Kindle or in the, in the hard copy. You know, we, we wanted it to be a book. We've given reading times for the, the various chapters, um, reflection exercises for the teachers. 
we want it to be a book where people are using it as as a resource and and this isn't just for um teachers new to international schooling um i would argue that a teacher at any stage of their career could get something from the book okay maybe less than a new new teacher starting out but there would be chapters designed to appeal to teachers at, at all stages who are maybe moving between schools um and want to understand the school that they'd be moving to but doing that research is is critical and unfortunately isn't easy but there are there are an increasing number of resources out there um that the teachers can turn to Great. Well, yeah, and, and you list some here, obviously, International School Community, International Schools Review. Um, there's a bunch of forums. Some of them you talk about are, are kind of more people flame wars and people kind of <laughs> bitching about schools where they had a bad experience. And maybe it was, you know, and, and I, like people don't need lecturing about the Internet, you know, I mean, you've got to take everything with a pinch of salt. You know, if some people just because someone had a bad experience of a school that could just as equally have been the teacher who broke contract than it is the school's fault, you know. Yes, yeah, and I think any experienced international educator that will tell you that on the site that you're referring to there, it, that is normally the case. Um, yes, I would the te- agree. The, te- the teachers have have an axe to grind. Um, yeah. it, it is worth paying the membership fees to those websites, but certainly to be taken with uh, with a pinch of salt and, and balanced across research uh, elsewhere. It, uh, teachers are very, very kind people. A question posted on Facebook or um, in the UK. Um, Twitter is is huge for teachers and a question posted on Twitter will normally get answered uh, and answered multiple times with people providing authentic genuine um, experiences rather than trying to grind an axe in in public. Yeah and I think what you're saying Denry is so important is that genuine authentic information because that's kind of the you know the the really well balanced there are pros and cons to everything and as you say in your book you know there's this idea of of moving into a new culture where is home third culture kids there's so many nuances to this journey that I think make it quite complex and and you you talk about uh you know finding the right school is finding the right school more about who you are as an educator and what you want as a professional than there are certain schools that are set up in a way and that's almost a, a guarantee that you'll have a good experience? Or is it a bit of both? Um, I, I would say it's very much about who the, the person is, um, where they are in their lives, both professionally um, and personally, and a huge extent to which they fit not just with the school, um, but with the with the country um, as well, we we spend a long time in the book. the The whole international international education chapter encourages teachers to reflect on their own view of international education. So, as we intimated before, we as a, an international field don't have a, a great definition of what international education actually is. Some teachers um, are very philosophically sold on an international education and may, for example, um, via towards the IB as a particular curriculum um, program that they want to be teaching on. Um, Others would be less philosophically aligned and may be more comfortable in, let's say, a British school um, that teaches a British curriculum um, and is less international um, in its approach. Um, And so doing that reflection, thinking about where you are as a professional, thinking about where you are personally, where your family are, is vital um, as part of the research process. Uh, And and I would hope that we've given some of the tools in the book for people to do that. Definitely. Jeremy, I want to talk, um, obviously, you know, conscious of time. I want to talk a bit about finding a job. Let's say someone's listened to this podcast. They've ordered your book, obviously. They're looking for a job. What are the options and, and and also like what what tips or what would you recommend? Obviously, you, you tell us about what the different ways are people get jobs, affairs, etc. But what would you say like uh, are some ad, some eighty twenty rule advices to help people get a job like easily or quickly? Um, <laughs> I guess it would be um, in terms in those terms. Um, it's a good question. It would be the, the basics of making sure that your CV is correct and polished. Yeah. Time spent um, on your CV is never wasted. Definitely. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and increasingly, um, seeing CVs, I have seen some very, very impressive presentation of, of, of CVs um, coming through from, from young teachers. Um, gone are the days where a, a, a word CV um, in Times New Roman 
um, we'll, we'll cut it as it comes across the desk. Um, so some people go too far with lots of fancy graphics and, and various things, um, which can be a little bit superficial. But, but yep. as you say, Dan, time spent on the CV um, is, is never wasted. Um, and if we assume that the teachers uh, applying are all good teachers, um, the key differentiators are going to be the, the standard, the classic, that you've tailored your CV or your letter of application to that specific school, that you've done your research um, and that you know what the school's values are, um, you know what the school is prioritising and that you reflect that um, in um, your letter of application. It's very interesting we were interviewing a chap um, yesterday. He was applying for um, Harrow Appy, but he was able to quote back to us in the interview a line from the Harrow London um, website, um, and he connected the hill, Harrow on the hill, with Iwate Mountain, um, and it had the whole interview panel smiling because he ticked a box that he's at, he's gone and done his due diligence and read not just our website, he's read nice. the Harrow and he'd made that nice little connection um, between the hill um, and, and the mountain. Um, so he, he did very well in that regard. And, and they are the kinds of things um, that will make the difference. I would also say something that's often overlooked um, for teachers just starting out in international schooling. Um, they are less used to um, the vibrancy of co-curricular programmes as offered in international yeah. schools. So very often it's the case, international school teachers be contracted to do at least one, if not two, um, co-curricular activities, and very often weekend, weekend activities as well. That is part and partial of international school life. And teachers' CVs will rise to the top of the pile where they can demonstrate a commitment to holistic education. Um, again, however, the school defines that. Um, and a commitment to co-curricular programmes and a commitment to supporting the broader community of the school, getting involved beyond the, the nine to three. International schools are not nine to three, most are eight till four um, at minimum and beyond. That's a really good point is this co-curricular and understanding that uh, it's beyond the eight, uh, nine to three. Uh, Denry, because I think schools are looking for people to do activities, clubs, and help on weekends. And, and it's, it's quite a, a demanding and full-on uh, passion. And I think schools really look for that. I love the, the anecdote you give of this candidate that you were talking to. And I think it just attests to the importance of really doing your homework, looking at the website, understanding the mission and values. Uh, that obviously resonated with the panel was the work that he had done. Uh, that made him you know, kind of jump out. And I think your point about resumes, too. Uh, resumes, you know, it's so hard. You know, you could have a very fancy resume. It's, it's really, I think, at some point, it's when you have that conversation. And in the conversation, what are they bringing to the table? How important is the interview? I mean, resumes, what is the role of a resume for somebody coming into international schools? And then the second phase is the interview. What, what for you is critical where does it differentiate where do you start getting interested um, so I thought the, the, the interview um I, I would always say as a general rule let's imagine that one is interviewing four candidates or all four candidates could do the job and all, all four candidates their cvs are, are broadly similar um so it then comes down to performance in interview and and uniquely perhaps for international schooling and certainly these days um Teachers in the UK, the US, Australia would be used to delivering demonstration lessons. Um, so they would go into the school that they've applied to. They would be given um, a lesson to teach for 20 minutes to a group of children that they don't know um, in front of um, colleagues who they've only just met, possibly with a, a governor in the room as well. Very, very nerve wracking. But at least the schools get to judge their, their teaching. Internationally, that very, very rarely happens. And clearly these days, um, with travel restricted, um, it, it will barely happen at all. So the interview becomes critical. Um, the, the teacher's performance behind the camera um, and that interview is perhaps the only time. And it is staggering that international schools um, recruit teachers. They've interviewed them for an hour behind the camera lens and then they offer them a job 
four, five, six, eight thousand miles away from homes. Um, and, and the teachers get on a plane and, and, and take those jobs, having only met the principal for an hour um, on, a, on a Zoom call. I've done so that, that early. That's life, you know. That's like yeah, all, all the jobs I've had in my life have been like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's very, it's very brave. Um, it uh, it uh, evidences that sense of adventure uh, that international yeah. school teachers must have. But it does. It just reinforces how critical that that interview is. If the school is not going to see you teach, and you've only got an hour to impress them. Being prepared and ready for that interview is important. Can I just go back to the missing step of we haven't talked about is how do people find jobs? Is it job fairs? And can you talk a bit about that and how people should, would find a job in the first place? Let, let's say normal times, post normal non-COVID yeah, times. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm contrary, uh, conscious of being too UK centric. So for most UK teachers, all roads lead to the TES. For American and Australian teachers, that isn't necessarily the case. However, Again, generalizing the, the industry, even American schools um, do advertise in, in the TES. So if, you, if one was recommending one single source um, for jobs, it would be the TES for which there's an, an international section. There are then the various job fairs, which can be useful in getting a sense of the market, useful in getting a sense of what's out there. They're now done virtually rather than face-to-face. And different teachers um, have, get different amounts of value out of the, the job fairs. Traditionally, when they were done face-to-face, as we say in the book, they, they favour outgoing, eccentric, gregarious teachers who don't mind a little bit of small talk with the principals, um, have big personalities. If you are a little bit shy, a little bit retiring, walking around a big conference centre, having to introduce yourself um, to 25, 30 principals and um, elicit information about the schools was quite challenging. So different people have had different successes with recruitment fairs, but they have been a good way for teachers to um, very quickly get a sense of what's what's out there. Um, and in terms of the schools that are at that fair, get a, get a sense of the different tiering that we, we talked about um, earlier. Um, many of the recruitment consultants are, are well worth registering with. And this loops us all the way back to the, the conversation right at the beginning about qualifications. The recruitment consultants will know which countries will accept a teacher's qualifications, including whether their undergraduate degree will match um, with the subject that they want to teach, which is a requirement in, in the Middle East, whether or not their PGCI will be recognised in, as we said, for example, um, Hong Kong. Age becomes a factor um, in visas and the recruitment consultants will know which countries have the stricter um, age requirements. And so registering with multiple recruitment agencies um, has its advantages as well, other than a few agencies search, for example, at no cost to the teacher. So there's nothing lost to the teacher to register with multiple agencies. So that they would be the normal ways for teachers to start finding out and start applying for jobs. Denry, what about if I'm a new teacher and I want I want to go to a specific country and I see there are four or five international schools applying directly to the schools? Because often they will have an application human resource careers section. What, how or is that better to go through some of the other s- sources you mentioned? Actually, independently applying to different schools. Yeah, yeah. So um, and again, I'm cautious of um, overgeneralizing. Speculative applications like that are rarely successful. It doesn't mean that they won't be, but they're they're rarely successful. If schools have vacancies, they will advertise them. They will either advertise them in the TES, they'll have them with a recruitment consultant, or they'll be on the school's website. It is a highly competitive market to get the, the best teachers interviewing yesterday for a post in uh, Harrow Appy. And we were also talking about when we will go to market for the um, Harrow Appy jobs. And we will go very, very early school opening in August 22 because we don't want to lose the, the best teachers. So it, it is highly competitive and it is in the school's interest to get the information about the jobs out there. Speculative applications are not generally successful. What, what we recommend in the book, and, and when I speak to people, I always recommend, is it is worth sending an email to the school asking them when they conduct their recruitment and where they advertise the posts. So if you're interested in half a dozen schools in a given country, send either the principal or their HR department an email 
asking them about their recruitment processes. Where should I be looking? When will you be advertising? And that does two things. You, you find out that information, but if you don't get a reply or if the reply is very sloppy, that tells you something about the school. You've just done some valuable research into the school and you're more likely to favour the school that replied, you had a nice email back from HR or from the head. We'd be delighted to receive an application from you. We advertise in September in the TES um, or whatever. So that, that can serve two purposes. You talked about uh, uh, your school uh, in Appy that opens in 2022 and you, you kind of insinuated there is like a, a window or a season that's more better versed to go and look for jobs. So I assume that if I'm thinking next year, 2022, I want to go and become an international school teacher and start, I should start working now on that. Am I correct yeah, in we're, saying yeah, that? Yeah, when we finished um, this podcast, polish your CV. Okay. Um, you're, going to, you're going to need it. You're going to need it soon. So, um, different regions tend to advertise at different times, and again, it is a peculiarity of international schooling and a bane of many international school teachers' lives that teachers have to give their notice in very, very early, as early as in October of their their second contract year, if two year contracts um, are the norm. Um, so that gives a sense of when some posts will be advertised. Very early in the market would be September and October, but Come September and October, we will start to see posts being advertised for the following academic year. For, for Asia, the peak will be October, November. Um, Europe tends to be a little bit later on. It will be February, March, April because of much, much shorter notice periods in Europe legally mandated. European international schools can have some very late um, posts. And the Middle East tends to span all of that, though it's slightly later generally than most of Asia. But yes, John, you would need to polish your CV and have it ready to go for September because the post will start to come out then. And perhaps all the more so, and again, it depends what happens with COVID this year, as international school teachers have been stuck in country potentially for a year longer than they may otherwise like to have done, or they've decided they sat it out for a year, COVID hasn't gone away, and they've decided that actually now I do want to be closer to home, particularly with um, most of Southeast Asia being in its third wave, we may well see um, the cork coming out of the recruitment bottle. Last year, the number of posts advertised was about 30% down. We may see the cork coming out of the recruitment bottle a little bit, depending on what happens with COVID, for this coming recruitment season. Definitely. Denry, uh, I could definitely talk for another couple of hours, but unfortunately, uh, I've got something to move on to at this time. I'm sure you're busy as well. Hopefully we can get you back for at least one more chat. I'd love to talk to you as if we've got a whole list of things we didn't even get to on the book. And I'd love to talk to you about the business of international schools as well. So hopefully we can talk again. I, I, I would yes. be delighted to talk about that. Thank you, Denry. This was so, uh, I think this is so helpful for people that are excited about looking at overseas international schools as an option for a professional career. And uh, definitely, I would highly recommend spending some time on the book because it's, like you said, it's a guide. You can jump around and it will definitely provoke you into thinking maybe of things and processes that you might not have thought of when you're looking at this as an option. Thank you. Uh, th th thank you both. That's, that's very kind. I hope your listeners enjoyed it. And if they read the book, that they get the same value as you have uh, after the book, John. And where can, where can they find the book? Uh, the book is uh, available in, in all good bookstores, um, as, as they say. So it's available <laughs> on, um, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks um, are carrying it, B Books A Million, um, can ordered be via Waterstones in the UK, um, et cetera. Great. Great. Generally, fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, th thank you, gentlemen. A pleasure.